We've been looking at the theme, praying with purpose. And prayer is more than just an experience. It's not something that we just practice. We, we practice prayer with purpose. There's a reason why we pray. There are some people uh, pray like it's a ritual. It's what their religion demands of them. Some people pray uh, uh, in the motion of prayer. To them, it's an avenue uh, to just seek favor from God. There are some uh, that pray uh, for the purpose of penance. Uh, They think that if they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray, uh, they're earning God's favor. It's easy to be caught up in the posture of prayer and forget about the power of prayer. And so praying is meeting with God face to face and asking of God things that are purposeful and things that are according to His will. And if we don't ask these things, then we're going to really miss the heart of prayer. Now, allow me to give you a few points before we get into Matthew, uh, Psalm 131. We'll get into Matthew uh, now. We'll see Matthew chapter 21. But prayer must always be mixed with faith. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the cities, Jesus, he hungered. And when he saw the fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, let let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. Now Jesus commands the fig tree or perhaps even curses it and, you know, not to have any fruit on it or to be fruitless. I believe Jesus was demonstrating his power before the disciples here, that his word has power. The word of God has power. And not only this, but that God answers at times immediate prayer. Have a look. And it says here, And presently the fig tree withered away. And his disciples saw it and marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? And so we see that Jesus is trying to portray his power, but also immediate prayer, but mixed with faith. Look at verse 21. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, and you shall not, uh, and and doubt not, ye shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Now, uh, is, does uh, Scripture record that the disciples moved mountains? Do we see anything in Scripture? No. So obviously, Jesus is trying to teach them something. And it's something has to do with the power of prayer mixed with faith. Look at the next verse. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer believing, ye shall receive. Now this must not be misunderstood. We understand as we look in the other passages of scripture that we ask according to his will. John even says that, that this is the confidence that we have that if we ask it uh, according to his will, he heareth us. Anything according to his will. You can't just isolate this verse and assume that the disciples will ask anything and God was going to grant it to them. Obviously, it's in the realm of uh, the will of God. But also, he's trying to teach them the power of God, the power of his word. Remember the centurion? Just say a word and my servant will be healed. And, and, and mixed with faith. So prayer always must be mixed with faith. You can't have prayer, it's been said before, and doubt in the same room. You just can't have it. Okay? Now, you can have a little tinge 
of doubt while you try to pray, or you can have a flickering faith, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, but ultimately, you want that faith to light up the room. You want you know, to have that faith put in Christ in order for your prayers to be heard and not hindered. So prayer, praying with faith is a, is a you know, must. It's a must. And uh, number two, prayer must come forth from the heart. <clears throat> the psalmist said, I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. John Bunyan said, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. The Pharisees were guilty of this. Isaiah prophesied. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus confirmed that. And Jesus actually pointed out to his disciples the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees of their prayer life. So don't be like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 that like to be seen in the synagogues or stand on the tree, street corner. But also in Matthew chapter 23, he produces the several woes of the Pharisees. And he exposes their prayer life there as well. He says, and when thou, he, sorry, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, for ye devour women's homes, houses. For look at this, for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Pretense for a show. You just make these long prayers in front of these widows to take advantage of them. And so, you know, long prayers without heart is pointless for nothing. Spurgeon said groanings which cannot be uttered uh, 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 which cannot be uttered often, uh, often prayers which cannot be refused. And so prayers that are just deep rooted in the heart that at times they're coming out but words you're not even saying anything. God knows what you're saying. Your heart cries and it cries out by faith are prayers that are no doubt uh, answered by God. And there are certain situations that puts us in certain predicaments that our heart cries more often than others. We must, you know, again, face the reality of, you know, circumstances. You have agonized in prayer at one particular point more than other times. And the, and the question is why? It's not because you're using God as a spare tire. You're walking with God. And, and by the way, we shouldn't use God as a spare tire. But you're walking with God, but something has taken place in order for you to seek God in a very special way. And I believe that throughout the scriptures you see in the life of the apostles, in the life of David, and in the life of other godly men. And it's a place where God has us to be. It's a special place. It's a place where we meet God face to face in a very special way. Now go to Psalm 139. I want you to see prayer must be purposeful. There's a reason why we seek God in a more intimate way than other times. Not to say that our prayer life at other times ought not to be intimate. Amen? Or to always be intimate. But when Jesus was there in the garden, just before Calvary, that was an intimate time, wasn't it? More than other times. But yet he spent time with God the Father. He went in a solitary place to pray. But there we see a, a very unique circumstance in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where we get the famous verse that's been ringing every Wednesday. Not my will, but thine be done. Because there was a unique situation taking place in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was moments away from suffering. Moments away from 
being put upon a cross to die for our sins. Moments away from being separated from God the Father. He saw what was coming. And so that, that particular time, you know, he went back and forth, back and forth to his disciples and checked on them and they were asleep. And sometimes I, I, I you know, what was he praying? Sometimes I'd, I wanted to know, Lord, what were you praying other times other than what we see? Were you just, were you there still? Be still and know that I'm God. What, were you, what was coming out? All I know that was a deep felt heart cry from our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the Father. But in Psalm 138, we see David absolutely thankful for the presence of God in his life. David's passion in praising God was a reflection of his walk with God. And uh, to David, God hearing his prayer depicted not only the goodness of God, but revealed God's presence in his life. And so let's look at verse 1, David's praise. Remember, this, is, this wasn't half-hearted. He says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. It's a personal decision that he made. That there's a condition of a heart that is prepared to praise God fully, undivided, with the whole heart, not half-hearted. Spurgeon said, we need a broken heart to mourn our own sins, but we need a whole heart to praise the Lord's perfection. And so praising the Lord with our whole heart leaves no room for a divided devotion. No room for wandering motives. No room for thinking on things that we ought not to while praising God. I think one of the worst things that can ever take place is when we come before the presence of God and we're trying to praise Him or pray and our mind is elsewhere. You know, the, you know what you should do at that particular time when you're praying? Mm. You need to tell God what just happened. Yeah. And don't pretend that it didn't. Because you will only fool yourself. I stop and say, Lord, did you know what just happened there? Of course you do. But I can't believe it, Lord. I can't believe it. And I go through this time and all of a sudden, I'm having another sweet time. And then all the mind goes again. I did it again. Sorry, Lord. Why? And perhaps our hearts are not fully engaged. How our hearts is it, it, mixed emotions or mixed motives, wandering, and we ought not to. Our heart needs to be given to the Lord in the time of praise and in the time of prayer. Else we're wasting our time. You believe that? He says, Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee, those that are rulers among us. <clears throat> him, those perhaps that are rulers, kings. You know, David wasn't ashamed to praise God amongst rulers or gods, little g gods. And not only this, that this depicts to us that David was uplifting the supreme God, the king of kings. He wasn't ashamed of that. He was praising God before earthly rulers, unashamed. And by the way, David left a good example for his son Solomon. When the Ark of the Covenant came back, Solomon lifted up his hands and acknowledged the God of heaven. And uh, it was a good uh, testimony that he left for his son. Verse 2, David praises God for two things. For his loving kindness and for his truth. He says, I will worship toward the holy temple. I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. The two greatest attributes of God. 
loving kindness, the favor or the grace of God, truth, God's holy word. And, and David witnessed the fact that God elevated his word even above his own name. Have a look. And the second part of that verse, he said, For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Why would God do that? Because God's word is so important. It reflects his character. If God wasn't true to his word, then it taints his name. And so we know that God's word is true and it's in truth from the beginning. There's nothing chonky about God's word. It's pure. Tried seven times. And he elevates it above his name. And so should we. Amen. Verse 3. Have a look at David's prayer. He says, In the day when I cried, what happened? Thou answered me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. Immediate prayer. Immediate prayer. There are some times we wait for answered prayer. We watch and we wait and we be like that widow and we uh, you know, seek the Lord, or perhaps we knock and knock, but there are times that we get immediate prayer. We must have immediate prayer. God answers immediate prayer. Prayers that are put before him, there are, you just watch, Lord, he answers specifically in David's life. We see that he answered this. What do you think David was praying for? We get a glimpse in verse 7, but don't look there now. I love what Spurgeon said regarding this. Verse, he says, when he cried, he strengthened me with strength in my soul. Spurgeon said, if the burden was not removed, whatever he was going through, yet strength was given wherewith to bear it. And this is an equally effective method of help. Amen. Whether God takes it away or whether he sees us through it, it's strength nonetheless. It's grace nonetheless. It's power nonetheless. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Have a look at 2 Corinthians quickly. Leave your finger there, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul prayed specifically, and God answered. Now, I'm not sure if Paul prayed three times a day for this, or three times in the week, but the answer came, didn't it? It came, we know this in verse 7, we know that he sought the Lord three times. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing, I besought the Lord thrice or three times that it may depart from me. And so we see his prayer. Whatever the thorn of the flesh was, we know one thing to be true. In verse 10, he, he, talk, he talks about that he... he, he there was infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses. So whatever it was, it wasn't a good thing. It brought him low. It brought him low, whatever it was. And he wanted out. He wanted it to depart from him. But God answered another way. And he said unto him, my grace is sufficient, verse 9. For thee... For my strength is made perfect in weakness, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why was Paul's prayer turned into praise? Because he realized something, that God was able to help him through it. Whatever, whatever was taking place, whatever brought Paul low, you know, to be buffeted means to be, you know, um, pounded or uh, beat down. 
with a fist. So whatever it was, spiritual attack, whatever it is, it brought him low. And that's where God wanted him. Because he basically says, well, I'm, when, you're, when I am weak, I am strong. It's, it's there that God bestows his strength. And he says very clearly, my strength is sufficient. It's enough. Uh, my grace is sufficient. Characterizes strength. He says, my strength is made perfect. Characterized by power, that, that the power of Christ may be. All these things, grace, strength, power, go together. The power of Christ is his strength. The strength is his grace, favored upon him. And he realized that God's power or strength or grace is more than enough to see us through any circumstances. It's enough. For what purpose was he buffeted? He says it very clearly in verse 10. Therefore I take pleasures and infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, in distresses for what? For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I am strong. Christ's sake, nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Don't, you know, we should never ever go through hardships in our lives and ask the Lord if it's not connected with the will of God. This is connected with the will of God. Sometimes we bring things upon ourselves and God still can hear us and deliver us. But He, brethren, we want to be in the will of God because there is where God works upon a man. Because God wants to do greater than just give you grace. There's a reason why God answered another way. There's a reason. It's not just for power or grace or strength. There's a reason why. And we see that in David's life. Turn back to 138, Psalm 138 and have a look. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. You know what David knew? That the word of God was good and if only the kings can hear it. <laughs> yes, that's why we need to go and speak or preach the word of God. Amen. Look at verse 5 and 6. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he re respect unto who? The lowly. God gives grace to who? The humble. He resists who? The proud, but the proud he knoweth afar off. May God help us by circumstances or by different things that come upon us to keep us low, humble. Because therein lies the power of God. Look at verse 7. We see a glimpse of David's potential prayer. Why he cried for help. Why he cried to God to deliver him. Why? Look at verse 7. We see a glimpse, I believe. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Why use the word revive me? Why use the word revive me? Because when you are persecuted or you are troubled by the enemy, the natural thing is to bring, bring to being put down, brought low. Okay, let me say this. Discouragement. And I'm talking about really being pursued by the enemy. It is a discouraging disposition to have knowing you are being pursued. And David was pursued time and time again. The Apostle Paul was pursued time and time again. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. 
We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. He says very clearly, though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. My rod and staff, they comfort me. And if you haven't yet experienced being pursued by the enemy for the cause of Christ or being in the will of God, maybe one day you will and you'll understand how to pray for the grace of God, how to wrestle with God and cry from the depth of your heart that God will shower grace upon you in such a way that you would not draw back because that's what the enemy wants to do. Have a look. In the second part, thou shalt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. You know, the wrath of the enemies, well, the threats of the enemy can simply weaken our hands. That's what happened to Nehemiah. When the threats and accusations came to Nehemiah, Nehemiah testified. He, he called it for what it was. He was afraid, the Bible says, for they all made us afraid. Nehemiah 6, 9, their hands shall be weakened from the work. This is the whole purpose of putting fear in their hearts, is that their hands will be weakened, that it should not be done. He says, now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. For what purpose? So he can finish the work that God called him to do. And that was for Nehemiah to build those walls. That was God's will for him in that day. The disciples faced this. Peter and John specifically, I'll use them as an example. When they were preaching in Acts chapter 4, they were preaching that Christ, through Christ is the resurrection. Only through Christ. And the religious rulers didn't like it. They actually came up to Peter and John and said, by what power or name have you done this miracle? Interesting. And uh, the Bible says, Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit... He answered them, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, but he answered them very clearly and said to them, in the name of Jesus, listen, and there's no other name. This is the same Peter that denied Christ, now stands to confront the Pharisees and confess Christ publicly. And they beheld his boldness. Why? How did they see his boldness? Because he confronted the Pharisees. You look at the life of the disciples. You rarely see in the Gospels that they approached the Pharisees. They were probably almost hiding behind Jesus. And Jesus was confronting the Pharisees. You look at it, except John the Baptist. I don't hardly see the disciples come forward. And why? Because the, the Pharisees had already said amongst their community that if anyone confesses Christ, they're out. They're out of the community, they're out of the temple, they're done. They're excommunicated. And over here we have Peter and John couldn't care less anymore. They were fearless. And they perceived that they have been with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus confronted the Pharisees and Jesus was the one that confessed God the Father and testified about what he would do. And so Peter stands and says, you have crucified him. And you rejected him who now is the chief of the corner. Did you know that? Whoa. This is the same Peter that denied Christ three times? Yes, it is. Now, you can say that to an audience that will listen, but imagine saying that to an audience that would potentially crucify you. 
What are you going to do? It's easy to declare, confess Christ in front of people that are listening, isn't it? And then later on they go and they threaten them. They threaten them. They came back and they realized this is true. This is a true notable miracle. We can't deny it. The people seen it. All Jerusalem seen it. We need to tell them to stop. They came back and they threatened them. You're not going to preach in this name anymore. And Peter stands and says very clearly, you be the judge. Shall we obey man more than God? You be the judge. Obvious answer, don't you think? Like very obvious. Don't you reckon? Absolutely. It should be. But it's very difficult when you have fear in your heart and you're not filled with the Spirit of God to confront them boldly. So easy to cower. Draw back in the face of evil men that are threatening your life to be put in prison. It's easy to give in and give up. Told them to um, leave and threaten them furthermore. I went back and told the disciples what had taken place. It's, it's looking at that passage. They never spoke anything about the miracle. They never really spoke anything about those that believed. Over 5,000 men, they were more concerned about the threats and they told the disciples. And you know what the first thing they did? Prayed. Yeah. They prayed. And they acknowledged once again, like David did and like Solomon did, the God of heaven and earth. You know, sometimes it's, it brings comfort when you acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. Amen. Because you're acknowledging the maker of the universe that holds the world in his hand. Just to bring that to your attention. That all God's enemies are like grasshoppers. They're nothing to God. Nothing. And the Bible says they prayed for boldness that they may speak the word and God granted them boldness and they went speaking the word. What a blessing. Have a look at verse 7 again. David learned and understood that God would continue to uphold or quicken or revive him through dark, the darkest hour. And he says, not only revive, thou shalt revive me, when I walk in the trouble, that thou shalt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. Let me see if I can illustrate this quickly, please. I can kind of envision how this is almost looking like. Because we're always going to have enemies, especially when you're preaching the gospel. Jesus had them, the disciples had them, David had them. Anyone moving forward doing the will of God will have them. If I can use Sam and... Tyler, can I just use you quickly as an example? If you can just lie down on the ground, if you don't mind. No, no, you, you stand up, Tyler. Right? You come at me like you're an enemy. Just raise your hand like this. Right? I can almost see with his left hand he stretched forth. This is God. And with his right hand, you can almost see this picture. That this is what God wants to do continually in our lives. Because the enemy is constantly coming. And God is constantly helping us up. A just man falls how many times? But he gets up again. And he gets up by God's grace. And I can almost see this picture. But you know, if we don't pray, we don't pray for God's strength, power, or grace, it's not going to happen. You know what's going to happen? You're going to stay down and cower. You're not going to get up and do what God's called you to do.
That, that's what's going to happen. See, the enemy's perhaps always going to be there. They're not going to depart. They're pursuing you one way or another. But God is going to protect you until that day when your departure is at hand. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Do you understand that? And there's a departure that we have an expiry day. Every single one of us has an expiry day. But this is how I can almost see it. Look at verse 8. We see the Lord's ultimate purpose, I guess, in the life of David. The Lord, look at this, will perfect that which concerns me. David understood that God was working not only on him, but in him. God was going to perfect that, mature that. It's almost the Philippians 1.6 in the Old Testament. Amen. Being confident of this very thing, that he that begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to finish what he started in the life of David. And he was a man after God's own heart. And what was the proof in the book of Acts testifying about David? Because he fulfilled all the will of God. Look at verse, look at the second part. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thy own hands. You know what David knew? That God wasn't going to forsake him. And God wasn't going to forsake, finish what he started in the life of David because of his mercy. Because in the beginning... It was those hands that, listen, formed him. Formed him. It's those hands that formed him. On Calvary, it's those hands that rescued him. When Jesus returns, it's those hands that will raise him. But today, listen, it's those hands that will refine him. And that's the part that we don't like. You like Calvary, we like the second coming, but what about the in-between? I don't think a lot of Christians like the in-between. You think Job liked the in-between? <laughs> Not really. But God's mercy and grace was going to see him through it. And that's what he understood. Again, praying with purpose is this. Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Lord, do what you do best. I don't understand it. But I know that you work all things together for good. It's like what the Hebrew writer said. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things that ye have. For he had said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Not my will, Lord but thine be done. And that's praying with purpose. Let's pray.